Thanks for joining us for In Perspective, a program produced at KUT Radio in collaboration with the Texas Humanities Project in order to illuminate the importance of the humanities in a broader context. I'm your host, Rebecca McEnroy. Winter is the time for comfort, for good food, for warmth, for the touch of a friendly hand, and for a talk beside the fire. It's time for home, wrote Edith Sitwell. But in this time, when our thoughts and hearts turn to the idea of home, we ask, what is home? What does it mean to be homeless? What is the significance of a homeland in our seemingly transient, online, multicultural 21st century existence? Perhaps home is not a place, wrote James Baldwin, but simply an irrevocable condition. Here with me to discuss the concept of home and the matters of homelessness for In Perspective is Professor of Geography at the University of Texas at Austin and author of Communication Environmental Messages in Online Media, The Role of Place, Dr. Paul Adams. Doctoral student in American Studies here at UT, Susan Quiesel, whose research interests include urban geography and how race and class influence our concepts of home. Also, the President Mobile Loaves and Fishes, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to empower communities into a lifestyle of service with the homeless, Alan Graham. And finally, from the Moving Company, members and co-founders, Stephen Epp and Dominique Sarand are here to talk about their collaboration with Texas Performing Arts, Refugia, an investigation into the lives of those who find themselves at the crossroads of transition, navigating life's margins. Refugia will run February 12th through the 15th at the B. Iden Payne Theater here on the UT campus. Well, let's begin with kind of an abstract. I'd like to talk a little bit about the production Refugia and the concept behind what you wanted to do with it and kind of how you're approaching it and what the process has been like, what themes are coming up. Well, we started um, with the idea of uh, wanting to do something, a piece that spoke to the mass movement of people right now. I mean, when we were beginning to think about a project um, in the summer, it was right around the time that there were a series of days where the largest number of, of refugees coming out of Syria was happening, and one of the um, largest movements of, of people that's just about ever happened in terms of refugees leaving a homeland. Um, and we've t titled the piece uh, Refugia because of, we found this phrase, and it's from the Latin, it's literally place of refuge, but it's also a scientific term, which uh, it's, it's a label for an area in which a population of organisms can survive through a period of unfavorable conditions. And we felt there was something in that that was um, very uh, pertinent to what happens to people when they have to leave a place and are in that period of exile and looking for the next place that they can eventually call home and that's in a nutshell what we're what we're working with in the piece um, it's it's organized in five chapters and we deal with it's almost like five short stories put together um, that each deal each chapter dealing with a different movement of people across a border so it's always it's always has to do with transition across borders. Okay. We deal with the Mexican border. We deal with the Syrian Turkish border. We deal with we go back in time and deal with uh, the the border between East and West during the Cold War, um, and we deal with in one chapter sort of the eternal border of how we trace our genealogy, and if you begin to trace it and keep going further and further, 
in a, eventually you you sort of destroy all the borders and you realize really we're all we're all from the same place. Fantastic. And we're going to definitely get to this concept of borders and identity and home with Susan in just a, a moment. But returning to how you kind of produce these pieces, you ha- you thought of this idea that you really wanted to address this. And then what is the process of coming to a place like Texas from Minnesota and working with the Texas Performing Arts uh, Production Company and students here at UT? What is that collaboration like? And what comes up that you think, I don't know where this came from, but these are the themes that are kind of emerging as we collaborate? <clears throat> yeah. Well, I'm originally from France, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I've been living here um, in the States, so, so my history is a history of moving and working with people and cultures that are uh, different, and uh, for myself to adapt to, to the new environment I'm in, but also to encounter and get to know and discover um, other people's way of thinking. So it's, it's been our tradition as a company to work constantly outside of our own home and to visit not only theaters and audiences around the country, but to work with people, especially students, who, are, uh, who come from everywhere. And it's, uh, it's, it's the, the, the theater room, especially when you do a creation, <clears throat> is a wonderful place to um, get people who come from very different origins, backgrounds, to share suddenly a subject matter and bring their own um, either experience or just their own being to the table. So that's what we do. That's what we do for every show. And this one is particularly sensitive since we're here in Texas and we have a border and those... Uh, uh, but the, the sense of homelessness in general and the sense of refugees, uh, which I see a lot in, in Europe, I'm just back from France, and the amount of refugees, whether it's from Syria, but it's uh, also from uh, uh, boats running aground in the southern coast of Italy, is not just the end of the journey. Then they move, and those populations, whether they're from Libya, from Sudan, from Syria, from it's unbelievable how many countries right now people are running from. Um, they, they arrive in Paris or around the city of Paris, and then no one knows that they have actually gotten there. Uh, you find them under freeways. You find them under made-up tents. There is a whole also black market of how to use and exploit those people. It's a huge, huge story, and we're in the midst of it. I, I have a feeling that we're probably the largest exodus in our history ever. Really? Yeah. And do you find that it's, you know, uh, <clears throat> of course, um, Paul, you can speak to this as well. There's a different space that we're in with the idea of immigration and finding a home and a homeland because of the ease of transportation, because of the Internet. Are we in a, a kind of, um, maybe not if the largest exodus, the most visible exodus and transient uh, space in our existence? Well, I think that uh, mobility is something that's on people's minds in the U.S. and in lots of other countries. And one of the things that, um, that drives the debate about mobility 
is everybody has expectations and beliefs about who belongs where. And so um, people are perceived as being out of place somehow. And I think this is this is a debate that you find across Europe, you find it across the U.S., and I'm, I'm sure it happens elsewhere. We just don't hear about it so much. And that idea of place, that people need to be in one place, is really fascinating. Susan, I'd like to bring you into this discussion as well. You study the way that people identify themselves and how that influences their concept of home. What are you thinking as we're having this discussion about immigration and home and homelessness? What is coming to mind uh, pertaining to your research? Um, that's a that's a good question. Um, for me, I'm thinking about uh, current the current push in scholarship to move home away from being spatial or static, um, and to redefine it as something that can be mobile or wily. Um, some of the sort of original uh, thinking on home comes from Heidegger, who talks about home um, as being a space in which someone can be in place, and that feeling in place is really important for the concept of home, but um, more recent work is trying to push back against that because of the predominance of, of sort of migration. So many people sort of live a life of migration. Um, and in a time when so many people are in motion all the time, it doesn't make sense anymore to think about home as necessarily being in place, right? Home is instead a staging ground or um, another point of origin in a series of points of origin. I, I really like this Refugia project, and I like the idea behind it because I I do think that uh, giving people space to talk about their own experiences and how their own experiences influence their thinking about home is really important. And in my own work, I feel like art has been a place where people who don't maybe get the power to define what home is can can use art to reimagine and redefine home for themselves. Yeah, it is really an interesting interrogation into like what is this idea of home? And Alan, I mean, you really, you deal with this idea on a very concrete logistical level every day with Mobile Loves and Fishes. Talk a little bit about your work with Mobile Loves and Fishes and what is coming to your mind as we have this abstract discussion on home. I think it may be more concrete than it is abstract, actually. And um uh, Stephen and Dominic used a couple of words that I think are very powerful. One is the, the word exile. And so when I deal with uh, uh, those that are chronically homeless on the on the streets of Boston, uh, they're exiled. They're exiled out of their families and they're exiled uh, to the fringes or even beyond the fringes of our, our community. And then the word exodus, uh, which uh, obviously uh, harkens back uh, biblically, uh, and we talk about exodus within our ministry of uh of um, uh, uh, exiting uh, the ravages of living on the streets and mo moving into uh, the promised land as best as we could do that here on a broken earth. And, and so we believe very profoundly that in terms of chronic homelessness here in the United States, the single greatest cause is a profound catastrophic loss of family. Something has happened to that, to that underpinning. But we also preach a lot about if you really want to understand homelessness in the context of the United States chronic homeless population, you must understand what home is. And, um, and we believe that there are eight characteristics uh, to home. And none of those characteristics have anything to do with uh, the physicality of the space, the four walls that we might uh, uh, look at in, in suburbia. One, home is a place of permanence. Home is a dwelling place. You know, it's not a weekly rate motel or a, or, or, or a shelter. 
Home is a place of embodied uh, inhabitation. Home is a place of hospitality. It's this opportunity to welcome people into our home and connect human to human, heart to heart. Home is a place of safety and refuge. And so if you look at the uh, folks exiting Syria, there's not much about safety and refuge in that, uh, in that movement. Home is a place of stories and memories. And it's often said that the mortar that holds even the most impoverished home together uh, are the stories and memories that flow from that home. Home is a place of orientation. And then last and uh, not least, home is a place of affiliation and belonging. So there are there are a lot of themes that come up in, in that discussion, and one of them, which we haven't touched on yet, is that idea of kind of the metaphysical home, you know, this relationship to a spiritual realm or, um, or a concept that we aren't really at home with material things, but there is a greater home. And I'm really interested into where that discussion comes up, kind of, you know, in the academic world and also in the arts. Like, how do you address those ideas of home in, in discussions about terrorism and jihads and things that are being done for a greater spiritual purpose in the way that spirituality is used in political rhetoric? How do you negotiate those concepts of home in your work? Paul? One of the... Uh key ideas in geography that um, that we play with all the time and people in other disciplines find to be very uh, difficult, I think, to grasp is the idea that scale is something that we construct. Scale is not something that just exists, but human activities create different scales for different things. And if you uh, look at what people do in regard to establishing a sense of home, much of that involves enforcing rules. Um, and, and so if we take the very smallest scale and we apply the idea of home, we find that there are hundreds of rules that make people feel at home and feel as if home is being appreciated and used properly. Uh, there was a research project by Dennis Wood and Robert Beck who found that 223 rules govern living room behavior and that kids have to learn these rules before we consider them to be civilized. Now, getting back to the idea of scale, then if we think about how carefully we try to enforce rules about homemaking at the small scale, we can, I think, understand why people get very xenophobic at the national scale, because that's another kind of home. They think that there are certain rules that should be enforced to keep out certain people to make everybody behave certain ways. These are the ways that they behave. These are the kinds of people they expect to see. And when somebody is breaking their rules, they feel like uh, their sense of home has been um, attacked. And so even the most uh, despicable activities, we can approach some kind of understanding of, of xenophobia, of persecution, if we think of maybe uh, a sickness or uh, some misdirected concept of home that's been applied at the national scale. Mm -hmm. With your work, you know, you study communications. And what I always find really interesting is this idea of a home on your computer screen. You know, yes. you go home. Certainly. And I wonder what that has, that, that sense of home, very directly located on right. our computer screen in this cyber world, sure. what that does to our sense of place in right. the larger context. Well, that opens up. A, a huge discussion. Um, and several decades ago, this discussion started. It was actually before the internet. Science fiction writers had already envisioned cyberspace. And then by the 90s, some 
sort of ragged cyberspace was emerging, and and we've seen much more of it in the last 10 years. But um, we've evolved, I think, from early discussions where we thought of this online reality as being a kind of place that stands aside from everything to thinking of it now as really sort of a hybrid. And so whenever we make our home in the world, we now hybridize uh, technological ways of engaging with our, our more embodied ways of engaging with the world. And so I have a, a grad student who studied Mexican immigrants to the U.S. and found that many of them are uh, in connection, in communication on a, on a daily or at least weekly basis with family and relatives and friends in Mexico. So their sense of making themselves at home involves both uh, an in-place form of engagement here in, in Austin or wherever, and then also some various forms of telecommunications, texting, uh, talking on the cell phone, using Facebook, uh, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, is there anything else coming to mind? Go ahead, Susan. Yeah, I wanted to go back to the earlier point about rules, because that is very much something that I look at as well. Um, and a lot of my work um, draws on the history of plant plantation slavery in the U.S. and how in plantation slavery there became these sort of normative kinds of being at home that people could could feel or experience, and, and then how those, those norms from slavery either do or do not impact the way people live in the present day. And it's interesting to think about xenophobia and the rules at the national level, because f for my own work, I'm looking at a population that was not seen as part of the nation, even though it was already living within the nation. Um, and a lot of the ways in which black homes were devalued was through the same set of rules that is used to justify the keeping out of, of outsiders as well. Um, so in U.S. national history, you can see things like Indian boarding schools that attempted through practices of home and through um, sort of a residential training to take the Indian out of the man, right? And then into the, into the 19th century, you can see, and into the 20th century, you can see um, prescriptive home practices being used to shame black women about the way that they kept their home. Um, on the other side of that, uh, there's evidence that enslaved people intentionally kept messy homes because it made them look not like homes to the white observer, which allowed them to then uh, hide the thing that was most important to them. Um, of course, the white observer then just thought that they weren't good at keeping homes, but it was actually sort of an intentional strategic mess. Um, like subverting this idea of a home. Yeah. Um, when, you, when you realize that the system doesn't respect you, uh, then you can sort of start playing with its rules and, and, and devising ways to subvert through the subversion of norms to protect things you really care about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is really fascinating, too, the way that home plays into this mythology of existence. I'm, I'm interested, Dominique and Stephen, like, what are you thinking about when we're having these types of discussions about norms and rules? How is that playing out in your production? I think for us, in, in terms of this piece that we're trying to unearth right now, and we're in the, we're in the midst of it, you know, we, we get in the room, we have a lot of material and ideas and you you begin to it's the piece reveals itself in a certain sense as you go I mean that's sort of the nature of creating a piece of theater we're not creating a, a documentary piece with a lot of facts and a lot of um, specific you know uh, statistics about how things work or but it's it's more of a poetic way of approaching that sense of what it is to have a sense of who you are and where you come from and to have to 
cross a border and it disappears and what do you have left and and what do you carry with you um, and in in a lot of the chapters it, it comes down to an essence of some uh, a particular story or in in one chapter it's really about the music that they carry with them and at the border they try to explain their music to the people who who hold the border and in doing that it's art it's what the power of what art can do to transform someone and suddenly these people who've never heard this particular kind of music their their lives change and so you have this this moment of two things like that meeting and crossing at a and but it's at a border where in a sense those are those those crossing points everything is suspended it's it's no one's it's no one's home really but it's a point where something can actually happen that's shared. I mean, that's it, that's in one chapter. That's um, in a poetic way, a way of transforming on stage what is a, a harsh situation and trying to open it up in a sense and let it move and become something else. Renegotiating our idea of home and what that is. Dominique? Well, no, just just a, a small example. Because actors have to portray uh, characters or people, and uh, the subject matter being about refugees, it's interesting to see the actors just discover uh, what it is, and that the the world is much wider than they thought. Um, one of the examples we do, we do this uh, this scene about the Syrian exodus into Turkey, and it's a it's a Syrian family, mostly women. Of course, the men stayed behind. Uh, either got killed or fighting, and the patriarch. Muslims pray five times, it's five times a day. So we're learning the Muslim prayer. With all the technicians, all the designers, we decide everybody's going to learn it, which is a beautiful, beautiful gesture. It's a beautiful ritual. So in a way, we're learning something that we would never, never have approached or got uh, close to. But because of the necessity of the art, the piece, we suddenly realize that we're learning something that is quite extraordinary, quite beautiful, too. So home becomes also, I mean, in terms of the art piece, it becomes to get outside of your home and try to see how other people live. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, what's really beautiful about seeing it from this perspective is that you can get at certain truths through abstractions. And I'm interested, Alan, you know, what truths that you see every day in the logistics of home and homelessness are you hearing through the abstractions of discussing refugia? Since about uh, 2002, I have probably spent uh, 150 nights on the streets sleeping uh, with our brothers and sisters in the places that are available to them to sleep. could be under the... Uh, uh, the overpasses, urban camps, uh, shelters. Uh, you know, a common theme emerges, is, and, and they feel uh, out of place. They feel discarded. Uh, they feel unwanted. Uh, they feel despised, and, and they feel outcast. And what's interesting is that if you die on the streets of Austin, Texas, and any of our uh, cities in the United States, indigent, you're going to end up being buried in the pauper cemetery where the despised and outcasts go to be lost and forgotten. Even though it's a beautiful piece of real estate, it's still a, a place to go to be lost and forgotten. So on our community first development uh, that we're uh, developing now, we we have a columbarium where we about a year ago interred uh, the cremated remains of two of two people that were part of our, our family. And 
all of those that come onto the property now and see that columbarium are now calling dibs on the other 22 remaining vaults that are in that columbarium. Because for the first time in years and years and years, they even see after they're, they're dead that there's a sense of place and a sense of permanence for them. And we didn't realize that until we put the columbarium out there and uh, interred the ashes and etched their names in granite. Um, and you begin to look at yourself when we die. We're hoping that there's going to be a memorial service and people are going to uh, evangelize something good about what our life meant. But there's a, a large population of people here who think and believe very firmly. It's embedded now into their DNA and we're trying to extract that bad stuff out that they're not worthy. I think that's really fascinating what you talk about, this idea of memory and being lost and forgotten as being part of what homelessness is. You know, cutting off that memory, being forgotten, also plays a part in how we relate to others when they lose their memory, when they, you know, they have Alzheimer's or they undergo a brain uh, disorder. There's kind of a loss of this idea of home as a memory. And I'm, I'm interested in what people think about that idea of home and memory and constructing this place where certain memories are, are known and um, celebrated and remembered together as a unit. What is the role of memory in home? We actually start our show with a chapter that is less obviously about um, refugees or, or being in exile. Um, and in, in this chapter, we, it's more of we're in a nursing home. And there's three very, very, very old gentlemen who are coming into the space. And it's more about that minutiae of, of the detail of what it is to just try to move and get to a chair and sit down, you know, when you're that fragile, when you're that old, when you've, and, and all the history that the body carries with it, in a sense. And, and then there's a transformative thing that happens. I, I won't go into the details of it, but it allows them to remember what it was to be able to move, what it was to have a, a body that could do whatever it wanted to do when you're, you know, in the, you know, in your teens or you're, you know, just that, that endless exuberance and fearlessness of being able to throw yourself. So it's watching them have remember what that was as and in a way it's a it's a it's a parallel story to the the borders and the memory the how memory helps us cross a border into something that now we're on the other side of that's another aspect that we sort of explore with the piece and put that in relation to these other very concrete stories that are much more specific yeah it is fascinating is seeing your your body as a home as well. Dominique, did you want to add to that? No, no I just had the thought that whenever I, I, I think about memory and tied to home, which is obviously something that I deal with all the time because this is not my birth home, I do think that there is something oddly that you transition, the, the memory of it becomes almost stronger than the place itself. So I'm just thinking out loud, uh, if, if your memory or if you have been born in an environment that's particularly difficult, complicated, where you feel like you've been ignored, uh, what is the memory that you keep of this as you grow? And is that home as well? Susan? I mean, I would argue, yes, that is home. And that's one of the fascinating things about home, especially when we're talking about exile or other sort of violent 
um, engagements with home spaces is that that can be normal and natural. And I also, I wanted to bring up as well, I'm always a little troubled when nostalgia becomes critical to home. And I want to be really careful when we're talking about memory, because I think home is absolutely a place where memories are created, relationships are forged. But for homeless communities in particular, those relationships are still being forged. Um, new friendships are being made, new family relationships. You referred to a couple of the people as members of your family, right? So you're still constructing a family um, in this maybe uncomfortable situation. But um, I would, I personally would, would want to call that a home of, of sorts, you know. One thing that's interesting to me about homelessness is that there's still a set of practices. There's still the practice of camping or of staking out your space or whatever else that to me don't don't always seem that different than the practices of home that people engage in who are not considered homeless. So I think when we talk about memory, it isn't always a deep past and nostalgic lost thing. Even when a, one home has been lost, there's a new home already in construction at every moment, right? As soon as you move out of a country and are a refugee somewhere else, that refugee camp becomes a home, right? You work on building or rebuilding whatever's been lost or building something new, you know? So home is always in the process of production to me. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. go ahead, Paul. So uh, other people's comments made me think about um, the, the importance of objects to our sense of home. One of the most uh, common experiences today, I think, is, uh, is, is travel. Uh, most of the people around the world, even the not very well-off middle classes in, in places like India and China, are, are really beginning to enjoy travel at a certain scale. And so we can think about something like a suitcase as our kernel of a home, a kernel of a sense of home that we bring with us uh, when we go somewhere. And then when we get there, we purchase mementos and t-shirts and things like that become objects that represent the trip itself and help us uh, remember the trip. So our, our memory is, is deeply invested in these objects as individuals. And, and I think we scale this up again in the case uh, of uh, many, many different geographical processes that, that involve scaling up or scaling down. In this case, we've got um, landscape features like statues. And, and all over campus, you can see statues. And uh, my office happens to be right across from the Martin Luther King statue. And you know, it's um, it's a sign of how we reperform. We we perform again and again a sense of collective memory. Yeah, exactly. And that uh, I wanted to turn to that discussion of performing memory and performing histories in um, creating borders, you know, geographic and also then really personal borders in how you understand a home. Can you give some examples as to how um, memories have been constructed to normalize borders in geographic regions? Oh, certainly. Well, I mean, one thing that's uh, really important to remember about borders is that they're not just lines on the map. Borders are performances that people engage in on a daily basis. A, a border is something that's constantly recreated, and it doesn't just exist between countries. It, it has little pieces uh, embedded within countries. So if you are in Germany or France and you uh, get through airport security and you're waiting to get on the plane, in, in uh, certain ways you're already in, in U.S. Uh, territory. The, con the process of clearing you to fly to the U.S. involves control by 
by our government. So in an odd way, our border is extending out around the planet. Um, and in, in the same way, if, if people who are considered to be illegal, undocumented people in this country, run afoul of authorities in, in Minneapolis or Austin or, or wherever, then again, you can see a performance of the border occurring within the country. And some scholars say that it, it goes all the way to the body and that we actually, in a sense, have these, these borders within us. Talk a little bit more about that, uh, the borders within us, just since you mentioned it. <laughs> right. Well, I think that those situations, probably the easiest way to get a grasp on it would be if we're talking about uh, children who were brought here um, by un undocumented immigrants who have grown up in the U.S. and in many ways they're culturally American, and and yet there's you know a huge debate uh, in in Washington about whether these uh, now adults should be given the right to become full citizens. And Obama took executive action on that, and it's become a, a, a bone of contention. And so in those cases, you have a a human being who. Um, because of a combination of history and, and uh, genetics is, is decided by some people not to belong and other people feel that that person does belong. I think that is part of the American kind of mythos, you know, of um, this melting pot idea of bringing in immigrant populations um, and assimilating immigrant populations, you know. But uh, I, I don't know if that is a myth or if that is a reality. I mean, it sounds like, you know, bringing that kind of up within what it means to be American does have some advantages. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I think that the U.S. has a, a record of um, oppressing and marginalizing immigrants. Uh, and at the same time, some of the things, some aspects of our culture have evolved, I think, uh, to to make it a little easier to uh, to become part of our society than it is in some European countries. And I've spent a significant amount of time in France, and one uh, difference there is that um, by having stronger labor unions and making it uh, in some ways better for existing workers, it also becomes a more troublesome place for people just trying to enter the workforce. Here, with relatively weak labor laws, it also is in some ways easier for um, undocumented immigrants to find some kind of job. Mm -hmm. Alan, I wanted to ask you one thing about the idea of homelessness and what it means to those with a home. Hearing a lot about refugees and how they're oppressed by people who are residents in the U.S., and what we've seen this past summer is a real rejection of the idea of immigrants in the U.S. and assimilating refugees as well. Um, and it, it seems to me like there is a, a discontent at home when you have that much feeling and passion against bringing in anyone who is, quote unquote, not like you. And I'm interested in just a, in a very localized level as to what your conversations are, what your experiences are with what homelessness means to those who have a home. Our conversation actually, uh, we, we have a phrase that says that housing will never solve homelessness, but community will. Um, and um, and, and part of that lies in that vision statement where we empower communities into a lifestyle of service uh, with the homeless. And, and when we connect people uh, that appear uh, on the outside to be very different, 
both uh, economically and, and culturally. And they come together and they begin to communicate. Um, all of a sudden, uh, uh, the differences begin to disappear or dissipate or, or become a shadow in the background. And the commonalities between us as human beings begin, begin to come to the forefront and, and relationships uh, begin to build. Susan? Um, in my mind, the thing that kind of unites the immigration debate and the issue of homelessness in the U.S. is the labor needs of capitalism. And I feel like capitalism is kind of something we haven't really brought up or talked about yet. But earlier when you were talking about the homeless as being unwanted or I forget the words that you used exactly. Despised, Despised outcast. Outcast, right? One thing that they're outcast from is the system of capital, right, that, that regulates most of the way we live in America. Um, and, and the world at this point. Um, and so immigration, you know, the, the drawing in of immigrants and then having a surplus immigrant population is also something that happens with the sort of boom and bust of capitalism. Um, so I think that that's a place where you can see the issues of homelessness and these issues of immigration and, and refugee status overlap. Well, we've, we've come to the end. Before we wrap this up, let's just kind of give a, a little bit of an assessment on where we are now, kind of what this discussion has illuminated for you and what thoughts you would leave our audience with. Paul, go ahead. I think that there are so many different threads that have been brought up through the discussion. And, and you know, in, in some way, I think they lead in many different directions. And, you know, if you focus on each thread, it seems like um, it, it, there's no common focus to all of this. But, you know, I, I really think that if we understand the basic way that, that a place functions, which is it's, it's a location. It has uh, certain um, actions that people uh, use to come together, and it has memories and values and, and beliefs. And, and if we just keep in mind those general qualities of place, that we'll, we'll have a better understanding of what's going on, whether we talk about something small like a house or, or a city or a country or, or in the entire global system right now. Stephen? It seems the, the story of immigration is a, it's such a, it's a quintessentially American story. I mean, of course, it's happening everywhere in the world in terms of refugees and movements of refugees and people in exile. But I think in a way, the American story is that our, our mission statement as a country really is we are the place where anyone can go and try to make a new life. That's to me, in a way, has been the story of America. And so everyone can, everyone has a, a story in their family or a relationship to that journey. Um, at some point, if they trace themselves back far enough, we're all immigrants in this country. And we all came from somewhere else. And we're all really, in a sense, visitors here. <clears throat> and I don't know, to me, that's the, that's the great American piece of it that we all sort of live with and struggle with and and try to own and try and what leads then people to keeping trying to keep someone the next wave out but if we're truthful to ourselves as a country that that's our mission that's why this place exists Dominique I as an artist and as a citizen of um, you know several countries um, I'm wondering 
how we can, as artists, help. Um, not necessarily take down, but rethink um, all those barriers that keep uh, people from living in, uh, in a respectable way, wherever they are. I, I don't think that the transition or the fact of moving is unnatural. Uh, I do. I've made that choice personally, and I think it's a great choice, and I love it, and I think a lot of people do so. It, it's it's the unwelcome, and um, the as we've said many times in in different use different adjectives, it's people who are forced to moving and and feel like they don't have a home. Uh, that that I would like to as an artist to help and focus on and and try to open our um, a little white uh, closets to the fact that there's a world around us that's larger than us and uh, we can certainly, certainly do a lot to make it better. Susan? I really like how transnational this conversation has been and that we're talking about the breakdown of international borders, which I think is a really important thing to keep in mind. But I also want to want to make sure that that there's space in the conversation for the groups of people who um, either weren't immigrants here, like the Native peoples who still populate our country, um, and also for Black Americans who um, were brought here by force and whose relationship to their pre-movement homeland is very different than European immigrants or um, even Central American or South American immigrants. Um, and also um, that we ha we always sort of have to think about how there are borders within a nation in addition to borders outside of a nation when we're having conversations about migration or what home is and who gets to be part of whatever scale of identity we're talking about. Beautiful. Ellen? This conversation's like a, a prism sitting in the middle of the table and in the middle of the, the prison uh, is this issue of home and, and homelessness, and uh, there's a myriad of facets at which we each, you know, look at this uh, issue. I come at it from a, a point of pure chronic homelessness on, on the street. It's, uh, the, the international perspective is one I don't have, but it's important to uh, integrate into the dialogue and in, um, in, in the in the one of. Uh, uh, black America, even though I'm tangentially uh, in there, it's not something that's enculturated into my uh, complete understanding. It's it's so complex, uh, actually. But how important it is for us to be able to look through that prism uh, and give our viewpoints and lay them out on the table, and out of that, that conversation will come uh, some extraordinary commonalities that we can begin battle and then there'll be some disagreements that we ought to maybe just put off to the side and not worry about those right now and um, in order to be able to um, make this world a better place because we can. Alan Graham is the president of Mobile Loaves and Fishes. Dr. Paul Adams is with the Geography Department here at UT. Susan Quiesel is from American Studies. And you can see Refugia performed in February. And for details, you can go to the UTPAC website. Steve Epp and Dominique Surround are from The Moving Company, and they'll be here through February. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us for this discussion.
You've been listening to In Perspective, a program produced at KUT Radio in collaboration with the Texas Humanities Project in order to illuminate the importance of humanities research in a broader context. Special thanks go to Morgan Blue and Hawk Mendenhall, and of course, our engineer, David Alvarez. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Thanks for listening.